Welcome back to Millennial Mental Health. I am Stephanie Contra-Hara, licensed professional counselor. Thank you for joining us again. And I have Lori Johnson here with me, also a licensed professional counselor in Colorado. And I will let her introduce herself even further. Go ahead, Lori. Hi, thank you for having me today, Stephanie. Of course. Um, I am Lori Johnson. I have a group practice in focus counseling uh, in the Denver metro area focused on addiction and OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, I'm the clinical director and we have a variety of awesome clinicians with our practice specialized in this. Um, I'm also the co-founder of Modern Therapist Training Collective in which we train clinicians such as yourself who want to learn more or even just a simple assessment for OCD. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll also have all of her information and contact listed in the show notes, but we're going to start off with our first question here. Um, In your practice and experience, what overlap do you see with substance abuse and OCD? Yeah, obviously having a specialty in these two areas, we're seeing it a lot more frequently than a, a general clinician in practice. Um, anywhere between 10 and 40% is the estimated amount that people with substance use disorders may have OCD, which is a pretty high numbers. OCD is considered the, the top 10 most disabling disorders, according to the World Health Organization. Um, and fewer than half of people with substance use actually get treatment for their OCD. So you can see there's a lot of like overlap in the community. Someone may go into addiction treatment and not know they have OCD. Someone may go into OCD treatment and not talk about their addiction due to stigma. Um, So we see it a a lot. I would say probably 50 to 80% of our cases, and we are a specialty practice in this area, are those two um, at any given time, both of those diagnoses overlapping. Yeah, I would imagine, too, as far as how they present is both diagnoses tend to carry a lot of shame with them. Like you mentioned the the stigma. Um, a lot of people maybe joke about having like OCD, which I imagine takes away a lot from a person's experience who actually has that diagnosis. Yeah. But the shame is, I imagine, a huge factor. Absolutely. Um I think we're, you know, I have a little bit of OCD. I have that too. I have OCD. I have obsessive Christmas disorder. Target came out with this, these t-shirts and it's just really minimizing to the actual experience of a person suffering with OCD. It's more than hand washing organization and is a preference, right? Color coding is a preference, but this is not a preference uh, for those struggling with the disorder. Um, And majority of the obsessive compulsive nature and and themes are the highest number with OCD are around harm and sexually intrusive thoughts. Now, these are unwanted intrusive thoughts, not willingly called. So how often are we talking about sex with people? Not really. And I'm from the South, so I was extra taught not to talk about anything sexual. (laughs) So then why would you bring up intrusive, unwanted images? You don't have anyone to turn to. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's so much stigma around um, substance use and alcohol use that like everyone's allowed to do it until it's a problem. And then you're not allowed to talk about your problem. You just blend in with everyone else who's doing it. Mm-hmm. I imagine denial probably takes hold very strongly in both um, diagnoses as well. Like, Oh, you know, it's not that bad or, Oh, like I can deal with this. Or I've even, you know, met people with OCD specifically who don't even recognize that their thought patterns or behaviors are even like maladaptive. They, this is how they think everyone like thinks and, um, this is how everyone behaves and they don't necessarily perhaps grasp that they're actually suffering from something that needs treatment. Absolutely. And especially if the onset was before average onset is around age 10 to 11. And then we see another spike in like early adulthood. Well, when you're 10 to 11, you're just starting to kind of like, form a little bit of identity and kind of breaking away from mom and dad and to peer in friendship groups. And you think like, Oh, this just must be a part of puberty or this is always the way that I've thought. And I don't know anything different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some denial around that or some fear of talking about the nature of the, the intrusive thoughts, Um, right. The fears around, uh, germs, contamination, um, illness, right? Isn't everyone afraid to get cancer? Well, if I'm thinking about it 90% of the day, my friend's thinking about it 10, ooh, that's a vast difference. Like sometimes you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So denial is an inherent part of like, well, everybody must be thinking this or everybody must be drinking to this level, even though I know teenage drinking or, college drinking as part of the the process of adulteration or life experience. But am I really doing it more than other people? Yeah. I imagine people come into therapy with those types of questions pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's like clearing, clearing the, the mud and creating a sense of normalcy around what is typical. Mm hmm. Yeah. What does treatment generally look like um, for both of these diagnoses? And what would you say the rate of recovery is once treatment is provided? Um, I'll talk about them separately because the research doesn't, there's not a lot of research out there that talks about the recovery rate rate when treatment is combined, which is why this is such a huge um, passion for me. Um, around addiction, right? Because like, you drink, uh, you drug or use, you get a dopamine or whatever chemical that is. And if a person also has OCD, um, use or drinking can become a compulsion too. I have to do it in this way, or this is how I get relief. But if I go over this threshold, now I, I consider myself an alcoholic, and I'm not able to do that anymore. Um, so the treatment for is cognitive behavioral therapy for both specifically for um, OCD. It's a specific cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure and response prevention. So um, in a very succinct point of explaining OCD for the purpose of this podcast, 
it's a combination of obsessions, um, which are unwanted, unwanted intrusive thoughts, images, urges, or anxiety or actions that create, um, a, a, a desire to do a compulsion and a compulsion is anything either mentally things that we cannot see rituals, self-reassurance actions that we do to neutralize or reduce anxiety, urges, impulses. Um, or it is also the avoidance of fear-based things that cause anxiety. Like for instance, if I'm afraid of I'm going to have to do this compulsion of locking my door over and over. Well, I'm just not going to leave the house today. So I don't have to do that thing or experience that anxiety. Um, and then it's also a, a compulsion is any kind of action. And sometimes those are the things that we see like hand washing. I see my friend washing their hands a hundred times. They must have OCD um, or the perfection around organizing. It's literally like, doing this over and over and over versus me just organizing my pens. They have to be in a just right order. It has to feel right, etc. So we do, we challenge those things through exposures by making a hierarchy. We basically rate them from very low ranking anxiety to high ranking anxiety and start broaching those behaviors without doing the normal response that reduces the anxiety. So you can see in that, it's very similar to drinking or drugging. What are the triggers that you need um, to address? How do you start reducing or completely eliminating drugs and alcohol in the way that you're using them? How do we ramp up coping strategies? Um, and then a relapse prevention plan. How do we create this ongoing for you? So for some people, these two treatments take months, years. Um, some it's, you know, addiction is a chronic illness. Um, so there's efficacy for doing these treatments. Um, you can see with exposure and response prevention, there's a really high dropout rate. It's like, wait, why do I want to do all those things that have been scaring me? Yeah. I imagine the avoidance really, uh, peaks and there becomes a lot of resistance to yeah. Like, ooh, no, I've been spending my whole life or the past seven months not wanting to do this. Like, why are you asking me to do that now? So there's a high, a high dropout rate. Um, and then when you involve, you know, having the addiction compared next to that, the, both of these, there's no cure. It's just management of symptoms. So we have a relapse prevention plan on both ends to say this is your anxiety or your relapse for this thing is, is starting to increase over time. What are the coping strategies you need to do to maintain your efforts? Because it is a chronic illness. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to recognize that most mental health um, issues is, uh, is about management and is about how you can function better mm -hmm. in your life. Um, oftentimes people like to say things like, you know, recovery rather than cured for that reason. Yep. Um, and trying to also understand that the hard work can be worth it, even though it's super hard and people don't often want to 
do really, really hard things, but that they are capable and they are resilient and they can do these things, but it's very uncomfortable, most likely. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I don't think most of our lives are very comfortable, even when we think they are. We have to do hard things and like, that's how we grow. Right. We, we become stronger when working out because we're developing our muscles. We become, um, the, and, and I use the term like ERP it, right? We're exposure and response prevention life. It's a life skill that, I mean, the title of your, your podcast is about millennials. Like that's a life skill to grow is to be and to learn and to do new things. Otherwise you stay stagnant. And stagnicity is like the bane of any of our existence, but we're not growing if we're stagnant. Yeah. If you're doing compulsions over and over again or drinking and drugging over and over again, your life becomes stagnant or depletes and deplenishes even more. Yeah, I imagine both of these diagnoses a lot as most mental health diagnoses like impact not just like one facet of someone's life, right? It impacts like multiple um, areas and it's they're difficult to like contain and maintain unless you know, treatment is fouled, I guess is the best way that I could say that. Like treatment is, you know, uh, taken seriously um, because... Experiential. Yes. Yeah. Experiential. Like you have to actually do it. (laughs) Yeah. You can't just, you know, say like, oh yeah, I'm trying today or I, you know, well, you can't say that you're trying today and trying today is important, but it's not like you just get give it one day's worth of effort. It is a, a lifetime worth of, it's a lifetime of doing different things um, to have a, a better life overall. Absolutely. Yeah. And our kind of team motto is like ERP it. That's what we're encouraging our clients to do. And there is some, there's some upcoming research around exposure and response prevention to like, um, paraphernalia of alcohol and drug use and other things, but it's, it's not an evidence-based practice for that yet. But it's like, you're going to, if you're in recovery, you are never not going to see alcohol or drugs again. You're never not going to be triggered. And the same with OCD, like the content that can be very triggering for a person is benign words. Um, Images, pictures, they don't even have to be at the tippy tippy top, but anxiety will kind of grasp or OCD, anxiety, obsessive compulsive cycle will grasp onto whatever it is that delivers that content. And our motto is ERP it, like do it anyway, see what happens, challenge yourself. This is how we all grow. Yeah. Everything's uncomfortable. I'm curious because I, and not as familiar with OCD and substance abuse as Lori is here. But I know from my experience of working in treatment centers um, for substance abuse that sometimes it can be kind of like a a -a whack-a-mole situation, right? You feel like you get one thing under control and then another thing rises up, whether it's anxiety or another substance abuse or depression or something or a PTSD response is triggered when the substances are removed. Is that very common in OCD as well? Yes. 
Absolutely. Um, and that's what we find when we have, um, you know, just co-occurring diagnosis. So it could be OCD and an eating disorder, um, OCD and PTSD, OCD and substance use and PTSD. Like that's, you know, there's a lot of high prevalence for our veterans um, or people with PTSD. You do not need to be a veteran to have PTSD. I want to clear that myth while I'm talking. Um, absolutely, it is a whack-a-mole essence of things. So if I, and, you know, I would encourage people who are listening or, you know, even yourself as a clinician, if I'm struggling with something and I see this other coping strategy come up, which I know is also a vice for me or a relief that kickstarts some other cycle, I need to be kind of looking at that differently. And on this podcast, we make it sound so easy, like, look at it differently and everything will be great. (laughs) But I need to say like, oh, crap, it's coming. Mm -hmm. And here's what I need to do for that without letting this other mole that I've contained go. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes it gets so overwhelming that we just kind of throw our hands in the air and cope. And I'm not, I'm not shaming anybody for that. But what will you do the next time that that happens? And I think we get kind of used to like just throwing our hands in the air, like white knuckling it. I can do it. I can do it. But I'm not sharing with anybody. I'm not opening myself up to the fears and things that are there and the stuff I have to do. It hurts. It hurts to feel after you've been drinking and drugging. It hurts hurts to process everything that's happened you know some people tell me like I don't even want to look at I don't know when the last time I saw myself in the mirror was since I've been in my addiction yeah I get that and then if over here the obsessive compulsive cycle kind of keeps you not doing that or like distracted with this other whack-a-mole that's what you'll keep doing like boop up and down and up and down mm-hmm. and back and forth. I also have another question for you again, since you're the expert in comparison to me and probably a lot of people listening, um, you know, I would consider myself more of an expert in eating disorders. And I know the incidence of eating disorders. If you have anxiety before the age of like three, you have like an 80% chance, you know, that's, that's wrong. of people who develop eating disorders have anxiety before the age of three. So I'm curious if OCD has any prevalence of showing up due to some other, like I know you said it's highly related to anxiety, but it's different than anxiety. So I guess if you could speak a little bit to that, if there's any, I guess, research around, is there a way to detect OCD early or is there anything that could be due to be preventative for someone developing this? Yeah, I think that um, if there's a couple of different things, um, yes, eating disorders in um, OCD do have a, a high prevalence of co-occurrence. Also, keep in mind that uh, both eating disorders and OCD are found to be hereditary. So they can remain latent, right? We don't know whether it's the nature versus nurture, what kind of creates that perfect environment for that latent gene to be expressed. We, we can't answer that. But I think the thing 
um, that can happen is like early, early intervention. If any of us that are treating anxiety know the questions to ask about OCD and know the assessments to do, even with a younger kiddo, we can help uncover that a little bit sooner and get an earlier intervention to exposure and response prevention, um, medication, treatment. I, I know so many people that had a diagnosis when they were younger, as young as like six, four, and no one ever got them the treatment. So the statistic is anywhere on average of 14 to 17 years for a po- person with OCD to, to find exposure and response prevention and get the appropriate treatment. That is a lot of suffering. Yeah, it's a long time to really be ingrained in certain patterns too. It takes a lot of time for neural networks to kind of like reroute themselves once they're that established, I would imagine too. Absolutely. And then, um, you know, within eating disorder treatment, they are doing a lot of um, exposure practices with food and other things. Um, And easily some OCD treatment can be involved in that process as well. Getting earlier intervention. There are tons of books for kids and like ways to reframe that for them, helping them along the way instead of doing that whack-a-mole piece. And I find that in substance use treatment as well. In fact, that's what uh, made me have a passion for this is I was working with teens in substance use treatment, like court mandated um, youth. And I'm like, that looks like OCD. And they're like, oh, no, that's just generalized anxiety disorder. Mm. And I'm like, oh, there's an eating disorder and OCD and substance use. Like, this is really interesting. And it it just kind of got shuffled off. Mm. And I think it's just the lack of assessment awareness and then like what to do next. (laughs) Yeah. I I think sometimes it's easier perhaps, I I don't want to blame clinicians here, but sometimes it's like easier to be like, Oh, that's anxiety, right? Like that's something that we understand really well. And so therefore we're going to treat what we understand like really well, where perhaps OCD isn't as there's not not a lot of um, training or exposure information. I feel like, out there compared to anxiety. Absolutely. Yes. That's it. That's the problem. And that it looks like anxiety. So people are, they're only doing what they know how to do. And I think, you know, I don't want to blame anybody, but you know, on the outside, it does look like anxiety. That is true. And I, I think that's contributing to that misdiagnosis piece. It's like, oh, yeah, it looks like anxiety. I'm using the tools that I'm being taught and they're not working and I'm too afraid to tell my therapist. Or maybe I'm just doing it wrong. There's that kickstart of perfection and OCD. It's me. It's me and I'm doing it wrong and I'm not doing it right. So I guess I'm just not going to get any better. Yeah. So I think everyone could do a better job. If you're treating anxiety and you at least know how to assess for OCD and refer out, like, that's awesome. That's what we have to do. You don't need to be an expert in this. Well, you that's reassuring. Yeah. You just need to know who your people are. And you know who yeah. your people are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've had clients, a few of them that, you know, we try all the things that I think will work for anxiety and none of them are really making much progress. And then it's like, okay, well, something else is going on here rather than keep trying to throw anxiety treatments at someone. 
um, trying to be like, all right, well, that's not working. What, what else can I um, try to figure out and, and do differently to really get the, this person that the support and treatment that they need? Yes, absolutely. And coming from a place of abundance of like, I will find the answer or the person or whomever, like, I don't think this is working. Something isn't uh, quite right, right? This isn't the typical response to anxiety reduction or stress to tolerate, stress, just tolerate, stress tolerance skills. <laughs> I was trying to combine distress tolerance and something. In- <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> oh, that was a tongue twister. Distress tolerance skills. Um, if they're not working, coming from a place of abundance of like this person in front of me and to help. And I may not have all the tools. So let me, let me ask my colleagues. Let me check in with people. And I think sometimes clinicians are really afraid to do that um, out of our out of our own insecurities. Mm-hmm. We don't want to admit that we don't know, or you know, just this fear thing of like, oh, how am I going to tell my client that I have to refer them out? And meanwhile, your client may be like, I don't know how to tell them this isn't working. <laughs> Yeah, so perhaps like both sides are kind of coming from it in like a I don't know what to do from here sort of place. And maybe again, it goes back to the importance of just like calling them that out, right? Whether it's a therapist and a client relationship or a parent and a child relationship or, you know, a partner relationship, like it's okay to say like, I don't know how to help. Like yeah. I'm going to do my best to find someone who knows how to help, but it's not me. And, you know, trying to resource these things out rather than feel like you have to always be that person that helps somebody. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to ask a more current question about how OCD and substance abuse perhaps are showing up differently during this past year and COVID and all of the extra complications that have come in the past, like, you know, 16 to 18 months. Yeah. Um, unexpectedly, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like a swift life change around everything. Um, I think for substance use, certainly uh, people with um, issues around addiction are, are at a higher prevalence for COVID because of hospitalization, of treatment, of being in close quarters. And of course, some of that is changing and we're you know seeing... Um, some reductions out there, but alcohol sales increased in March of last year, like 55% wow. overall um, in certain sales and things uh, up to 75%, depending on like, you know, beer or wine or hard liquors were up even, even more overall. And of course on illicit drug market, we don't get to know what their stats are for sales. <laughs> Yeah, it's not really recorded very well. (laughs) Yeah, but um, hospitalizations, um, uh, unintentional deaths, overdoses, um, need for naloxone and um, medication-assisted treatments for addiction. Um, But people are really of worry, sadness, fear, loneliness. I mean, that increased uh, across the board 40% plus, like 40 to 60 in each of those categories. So um, 
We've seen an increased diagnosis of OCD. Definitely myself and my colleague, Carla, um, have had more consultations this year from clinicians like yourself, family members, like, what is this? Um, They had panic disorder. They had GAD. I have always known I had anxiety, but this, right, rumination, um, intrusive, unwanted images, this came out of nowhere. And we didn't have the distraction of other things. And again, back to nature, nurture, a latent gene expressed itself or it was already there and a person was getting anxiety treatment and the tools weren't working anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I imagine some things probably were exacerbated by job loss and um, just having less things to do. Um, uncertainty, fear around health. Um, you know, sometimes people with COVID or people's fears around COVID aren't about getting it themselves, but potentially having asymptomatic symptoms and giving it to someone else, like fears of harming other people. Mm-hmm. And that's not a like suicidal or homicidal thing. That's really like, oh my gosh, I could really I could spread COVID to someone else and be responsible for their death, mm-hmm. potential death or yeah. their illness and feel really bad and, and guilt ridden. Yeah. I've um, even seen it in my clients, this, I guess, additional anxiety, you know, not even leaving the house. I, I think I have a few clients that to this day have like left their house maybe just to go to the doctors and that's it. Yeah. Was fear. I mean, I think it created a sense of pandemonium because for a long time we didn't know what was happening, and we're not, we're still not out of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people have been saying like, "Oh, it's the prevalence with like OCD amidst this." We don't even know the numbers because we're still in it. <laughs> yeah, we're still in it, and you know, from a, a trauma perspective, I'm kind of interested to see what's what's coming out of this. Definitely changed my life, the way of practice, like I'm sure with you as well in your practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot more additional uncertainty. And I definitely, you know, to expose myself a little bit here, tend to be a little bit of a planner and a perfectionist in a lot of ways. So when I can't plan and I can't make things perfect, like it does stress me out. So I imagine as someone, in, you know, and I go to therapy and I've been in therapy for a long time. So, you know, even people who are generally well-adjusted have been experiencing a lot. And again, I don't want to assume that I'm well-adjusted, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I do, I do go to therapy and I know a lot of people who've been in therapy for a while have experienced a hard time. So I can only imagine people who, you know, aren't in therapy or aren't don't have resources or the access to two things that would help uh, support their experience in this horrible time. Yeah. Even just thinking about like, I'm, I'm an introvert. So at one point I was like, this is amazing. Like I get to say no, no one's going to question me and like snuggle up with a book, but that was not every day. I certainly had my own panic, but even just being, I'm an introvert even an extrovert being forced into some of these positions and really needing to like cope with needing people around, like even those people, right. We're not just talking about like people who meet the criteria for substance and alcohol use disorder. It's just people coping 
with the situation. Mm-hmm. And that can easily lean into, right? No one ever makes the choice to like, I, I think I'm going to wake up and like become an alcoholic. It's a disease. And if extroverts are coping that way or other, you know, other people in general turn to alcohol or drug use just to fill the time of loneliness and isolation, that can trigger other things. And that that's some research that hasn't come out either. Yeah. This is a little unrelated, but I have a few clients who have uh, BFRB, so body focused repetitive behavior, and the amount of boredom that has taken and the pain has like erupted even greater from, you know, the boredom is just, I think it's impacted so many people in so many different ways. I think is the reason why I brought that up and well adjusted or not. Yes. I don't think anyone came out of this being like, Oh yeah, I handle it like a champ. Like maybe, maybe there were some things that were exciting about staying home or watching movies or cuddling up, but it wasn't great. Yeah. It wasn't great. Yeah. Regardless of the adjustment factor or normalcy. (laughs) (laughs) I had some of my own panic. It was scary. It really was like, I don't like not knowing things. Mm -hmm. And I work with the doubting disease OCD. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ERP myself sometimes. (laughs) Well, um, the last question was, is there any extra resources or things you feel like people who are either listening as clinicians or listening just as a general public would benefit from having access to or knowing about, um, about OCD or substance abuse? Absolutely. Um, so uh, great substance abuse pieces is visiting, um, SAMHSA or the National Health Institute. Um, also, uh, there's all these like addiction, NADAC, <laughs> they're so long, um, but any of these addiction resources, you're going to, uh, you know, come up with some statistics and assessments and, and population pieces. Um, for OCD specifically, the International OCD Foundation, um, we have a local resource here to, to you and I, the OCD Game Changers um, OCDpeers.com has um, wonderful groups, even if you just want to kind of dip your toe in or if you're a family member and want to know more. There's so many resources out there. Um, for clinicians and training, the OCD Game Changers has a, a training resource page for all of the national and international training options um, around OCD, including Modern Therapist Training Collective. Um, Yeah, those are like some really big hubs for great information, regardless of who has been listening today. Some great resources to kind of dip your toe in and really kind of challenging if you listen to this today and are like, oh, my God, I had no idea that that was OCD. Challenge yourself a little a little bit to know. To know just a little bit more, because you never know. Often people with addiction and OCD, they suffer in silence because they're shamed. Mm-hmm. So you never know who in your life may come to you one day and kind of talk about this or talk about their past experience with this. Yeah. <clears throat> Again, anecdotal. I think I have had a client before like in their fifties and they're like, I was just diagnosed with OCD and I had no idea that that's what this was this entire time. I'm like, Oh gosh, like I'm so glad that you found out what it was. I'm sorry that it took, 
until you were 50 years old to find out what it was. Yeah. But I'm glad that you finally were able to put a name to what you're experiencing. So I think it's definitely important for people to be more aware of, you know, what OCD really looks like as well as substance abuse. Absolutely. Even if you're researching on your own. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate you having this podcast out there, focusing on millennials, getting information out there. Like that's how we grow. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on today and hopefully we can have you back, maybe talking about different things in the future, but I really appreciate your time today, Lori. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Okay. See you all next week. <laughs>